that good? Yeah. <laughs> the yawn doesn't really yeah. inspire much confidence, but okay. Yeah, it's fine. That's <laughs> yeah, good. Whatever. <laughs> Welcome back to the Modern Lady Podcast. You're listening to episode 95. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lindsay, and today we are talking about Memento Mori. British novelist Dame Muriel Spark once wrote, quote, Without an ever-present sense of death, life is insipid, end quote. On death could be considered the least appealing or even palatable title for a modern-day reflection, but it's one that we would be loath to neglect. In fact, in contrast, a regular practice of memento mori is actually one of the best ways to make this life worth living. But first, if you enjoyed today's episode of the Modern Lady Podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you are using to listen to us. If you are able to leave us a rating and review, we'd be so grateful. Reviews are especially important on Apple Podcasts because they help new listeners discover our show. Every time you share us with a friend or leave us a comment, you help our podcast grow. This week's shout out goes to Bfish09, who left this lovely review for us on iTunes. Quote, thank you for setting the bar high so we as homemakers have something noble to work towards. I always struggle feeling like my work is just mindless task after task, but in the last few weeks of listening to, no, devouring your podcast, I have found new joy and meaning to doing everything I do well. Thanks for accompanying me on the journey around my home each week. End quote. Well, thank you so much, Bfish09, for your rating and review. It's such an honor for us to have you along for the ride as we also continue to seek joy and meaning in doing things well. And if you would like to leave us a comment, you can do so on our website www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com or you can leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube where you can find us at The Modern Lady Podcast. We also want to thank our Patreon supporters, especially the first three who signed up after my mom, Leslie Siloy, Emily Peterson, and Jennifer Potvin. For only $5 a month, our Patreon supporters receive bonus content, including our new podcast, The Friday Finishing School. Stay tuned until the end of today's episode for more information and a sneak peek. But before we get into today's chat, Lindsay has our Modern Lady Tip of the Week. Last week, we learned some carriage etiquette, and this week, I thought it was time that we returned to the 21st century to look at car etiquette. I found these tips on a website called Practical Motoring. One will notice the modern day language is quite different than what we hear when I share a Victorian tip of the week. Let's start with hands off the stereo. This article points out that unless the driver has said, feel free to change the music, you cannot change the music. It went on to say, fans of bad music are like the dead people in the sixth sense. They're all around us and they don't know their taste in music is terrible. Next, don't touch the glass or as practical motoring phrases it putting your greasy paws all over the glass is annoying and unnecessary also just in case you're five years old don't write your name on a foggy window now this one isn't just rude but it's also incredibly dangerous do not put your feet up onto the dash again i will turn to practical motoring here because of their fine way with words 
starters, if you're in a prang and your front airbags go off, you could be smelling those now broken feet inside of your nose. And I'm guessing that prang means accident. How about this reminder? Don't be a tosser, which can be translated into don't leave your rubbish in someone else's car. Finally, offering some gas money will forever be the polite thing to do. And let's face it, $5 doesn't quite cut it anymore. It only seems fitting that we end this tip with these final eloquent words from Practical Motoring. A quick rinse at the car wash won't kill you either. So perhaps you can gift your friend that has given you a ride a nice car wash. Wow, I feel like this is a really aggressive tip. <laughs> I feel you lulled me into complacency with the carriage etiquette. I thought, oh, right. everything is so lovely. And now, oh my goodness, my hackles are arise. <laughs> the thing that, that jumped out at me with this article was the don't be a tosser. Like I want to use don't yeah. be a tosser in my regular <laughs> language now. <laughs> Last week, we indulged. We waxed poetic about life's little everyday luxuries, and we exhorted people to take out their fancy china and light those beautiful candles and savor the little pleasantries found in their homes. But tomorrow is Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent, and so in typical modern lady fashion, we're making a rather sharp pivot. But stay with us, dear listener, because we think that the subject of today's episode will actually elevate life more fulfillingly than a candlelit dinner. Right, Lindsay? That's right. So with Ash Wednesday upon us, you and I, Michelle, we realize that talking about death, our deaths, the deaths of our loved ones, it's kind of a normal part of our life. We talk about this a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think that <laughs> you and I could forget how shocking and unsettling um, this can be for many mm -hmm. people in today's world when they hear two regular old moms chatting cheerfully about death. But as Catholics, death is something that is, you know, woven throughout our liturgical year. And we face it every time we look at a crucifix, read about the saints and the martyrs, and attend Holy Mass every week. And this is true, especially now as we enter into Lent. Mm -hmm. It's definitely part of a more spiritual vernacular, I would say, right? Instead yeah. of a secular one. And we even see that, like throughout history and I know we'll we'll talk more about history in a second but it's just this kind of avoidance of death mm -hmm. and in its place kind of a, a leaning towards thinking of ourselves as immortal or that we we will just go on forever and so when something happens that makes us confront this reality it can be really jarring yeah so let's talk about lent just briefly for our non-christian listeners um at this time, right, in these weeks leading up to Easter, we turn our minds to more somber and this more serious aspects of our human frailty. We voluntarily take on suffering by denying ourselves sweets, or um, we increase our fasting, perhaps, we pray more, and sometimes we even add in other mortifications like sleeping without a pillow, or sleeping on the floor, or taking cold showers. And while you and I could happily talk for hours about suffering and mortifications. <laughs> and perhaps one day we will. <laughs> yeah. Look forward to next week. Um, <laughs> we will put it in the most simple terms that we can right now about suffering. But it's just that when we voluntarily take on suffering, we do this to try as best we can to align ourselves with Christ's suffering. And that when we choose to take these sufferings on, we are forced then to confront within ourselves 
thoughts, feelings, attachment to earthly pleasures that might be preventing us and holding us back from growing in holiness. Mm-hmm. So memento mori, these words are popping up again everywhere. Again, that just might be our friends, but I do see it popping up in some mainstream stuff too. Um, It basically means, remember, you must die. And this isn't meant to be macabre or sad. It isn't meant to make us fearful. This concept has been around for a very long time, as we'll talk about. And it's meant to motivate us to help us focus on what really matters. It's been a central theme throughout history and art and music, literature, and even architecture. Yeah. And I think, too, this call to remember that we must die, the fact that we need a reminder is really interesting to me because it does remind me of that uh, search for immortality that I was just talking about. Uh, Mm -hmm. It seems to be part of our uh, collective memory, we'll say, from, you know, the Garden of Eden days. Uh, I remember hearing, and I couldn't actually find the exact place, but I think it's just kind of, it is common in Catholic theology, I think, the belief that we were actually meant to live forever. Like death entered the world through sin. That's what it says Mm -hmm. in the New Testament in one of Paul's letters. Um, And that this harkens back to the days of the Garden of Eden, where before the whole all the shenanigans happened with the apple <laughs> and being cast out of Eden. I'm, <laughs> I'm just paraphrasing <laughs> Genesis. No big deal. Um, <laughs> but actually, there was a, a tree of life mentioned in the garden, right? And this is found in Genesis chapter 2. And it seems to indicate that not only does God grant man access to this tree, it's different from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but that this fruit would allow them to live forever. And we get that impression from when God casts man out of the garden so that, you know, quote, lest he put forth his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, end quote. And so when we were cast out of the garden of Eden or when Adam and Eve were, we lost access to that tree of life and therefore death entered the world because of our sin. Anyways, all this to say that I wonder if we have a collective memory as human beings and as humanity of the way things were meant to be before they went awry. And that this rejection or kind of neglect of thinking about death and our deaths in particular is kind of linked to that sense that uh, we were not actually made for death Uh, It's an inevitability and it's our reality right now, but this is a a sad uh, circumstance of what has happened to us in the past. Yeah. And I think coupled with the fact that we're moving further and further away from the garden, right? Every generation. And then Mm. you were also completely turning away from an idea of eternal life in heaven, right? Not believing in that. Mm -hmm. Then if all we have is this life, if that's what people believe right now, that we only have this life, then you don't want that to end, right? You heaven forbid you grow old or Mm -hmm. let your body show signs of deterioration. Because if you believe that there's nothing left, if afterwards, if you believe, if you don't have the hope of an, um, an eternity, then yeah, this is all you have. And to try to make that last for as long as possible, that clearly is the goal. Um, you know, for a lot of people as each generation progresses right now, further and further away from the garden. Mm -hmm. It's a a God-shaped hole, right? Who Mm -hmm. said that, Lindsay? Douglas Murray, 
our beloved Douglas oh, Murray. Yep. Right. And he's an atheist. Yes. So we should say as well yes. that he's an atheist, but he mm-hmm. fully admits that there is a God shaped hole um, in our society. And you know what? So this leads perfectly actually into some of the first mentions of Memento Mori were actually pre-Christian. Um, and this, this is completely in alignment still with a God-shaped hole that we've all been, we all have within us, like you're saying, this collective memory of, of eternity, of, of a life everlasting, right? Of a place where there mm-hmm. is no illness and suffering and death. Um, and so we can look back to the Stoics and Stoicism began around 304 BC. And it's, basically a type of philosophy in which the practitioners aim to live a good life through self-mastery. There are four virtues in Stoicism, courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. Now, Michelle, those are pretty familiar Mm. to us, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Those are almost identical to the four cardinal virtues in Catholicism, namely fortitude, temperance, justice, and prudence. So the Stoics taught that facing death is a great motivator for living a good life. And they didn't mean a life dominated by the passions. They meant a life Mm. lived in moderation, facing challenges bravely, and doing the right thing. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, It does seem like throughout history, living a moral life Mm -hmm. goes hand in hand with living a good life. Yeah, right. Isn't that weird? Like, (laughs) Yeah, for most of history, it seems to be the case. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now I'd have to sit and reflect that if we still hold those sentiments (laughs) today. (laughs) Yeah. Seneca, a famous Stoic, wrote, Let us prepare our minds as if we'd come to the very end of life. Let us postpone nothing. Let us balance life's books each day. The one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day is never short of time. And basically, like what we're saying, the Stoics used death, The you know, keeping their eyes focused Mm. on death as a way to help them live life. They really were intentional in their days. They did not like wasting time and they saw each day as a gift. And um, I'll just finish with them with a quote from another famous Stoic, Marcus Aurelius. And he wrote, you could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. And what I think is so interesting is he wrote that to himself in his own journal as Mm. a note to himself. You could leave life right now. Yeah. So they were really focused (laughs) on the big picture here. So obviously then we, if we're doing the quickest view of history, right, then we can move forward to, you know, Jesus. And then through the very tumultuous years there and and all the martyrs and Mm. all of that stuff. And let's just jump forward to another great time in history, the Black Death that ravaged Europe (laughs) Um, between the years 1346 and 1353. um, The Black Death, the plague, it killed one third of the population. Like one, I don't even think Mm. we can, we hear that number, but we just cannot understand what that means. So, you know, throughout history at this time as well, there was no escaping death. So, so many artists created art that served as a further reminder to the living to remember death to keep it front of their minds. There was something really cool I came across called cadaver tombs. Oh, I say that that's cool because I've always been interested in this stuff. You might not think it's cool, but these cadaver tombs, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're Mm -hmm. stone, like they're they're not really a coffin, but anyways, think of like a stone table where it has an opening at the bottom and then there's a statue laying on the top and one underneath. Now, the one at the top is a beautifully and intricately carved um, effigy 
of the person who has died of the deceased. And they look like they're sleeping. They're still dressed in their suit of armor or in their regal clothing. And then underneath them, you see a second version of that person, another effigy, but this one is skeletal. It's decomposing. It's not flattering at all. Sometimes the, the back is arched. They, it, It's just not that peaceful repose. And it's this reminder that that is what comes next. Like it's staring you right in the mm. face. This is also around the same time where there were a ton of etchings and images painted of the deathbed, like deathbed scenes, you know, where people are laying in their beds mm. and they're close to death. And while you can see some humans around them, these paintings often had angels in one corner and then darkness and demons just lurking around the person waiting until they die, hoping to, that they can drag them to hell. And this just shows mm. the the battle, right? That we, you and I both believe that has been raging for our souls between good and evil. And it's hard to look at a picture like that even today and not mm -hmm. think about what we can't see that's happening around us. Yeah. And how, um, how common to everyone's thought that was, right? right. Like nowadays you're, you're kind of a little bit concerned to mention, I mean, death in general. And even if you are in a situation like a, a funeral or something like that, to speak about death, even in those situations, it, it feels awkward and it feels like you shouldn't almost. But as we see now from this age in history, at least, and again, through most ages of history, what, it was so common that they would even paint scenes, mm -hmm. right? like this. So it is just very interesting how um, it, it was a reality, I guess you could say. And so it was a, a more practical sense of what was to come. Yeah, it was everywhere, right? It was everywhere. You went into any church, into people's homes. It was just, they had these images and um, of death, of dead animals, mm -hmm. of dead people everywhere. And one of the last most, um, I guess, popular motifs of the time was the danse macabre. And it's the dancing mm -hmm. skeletons. And these were all over in medieval times. And that theme of dancing skeletons goes right up into the Victorian times. I highly recommend our listeners taking a minute to listen to Camille Saint-Saëlle. I love that composer, uh, to his mm. Danse Macabre, which came out in 1875. And then this theme continues right up until um, the skeleton dance video of 1929. That is Disney. It's a Disney little 1929 mm. movie and it's on Disney Plus, I think. It's also on YouTube. Um, but yeah, that idea of happy merry uh, dancing skeletons but there's a big dark side to that because they want to pull you in to dance with them as well mm. and to join them interesting i i remember looking into the dance macabre when i was giving a talk last year on all souls day mm -hmm. right and being really struck by those images and how it depicts people in the same image right of the the dances of death mm -hmm. people from you know the pope and kings all mm -hmm. the way down to even just the peasants they were all intermixed with each other and with these dancing skeletons in this um understanding that this is something that comes for everybody like no matter Absolutely. your station in life um, so from the Middle Ages, then we move into the Renaissance time, right? And mm -hmm. it was um, a time of great cultural, artistic, political, and economic rebirth. You know, it, so in the Middle Ages, the main values really centered around the spiritual life and how to get to heaven, essentially. But 
it moves into the Renaissance period. And among others, the main values of this time in history there were things such as humanism, which is the belief that human beings are the measure of all things. Uh, you had individualism, which is the belief that a person's own ideas and activities are what defines them and not necessarily that of your community. And then secularism w- would be another major one, which means that the that worldliness or the belief that life on this earth is of the utmost importance. So just an interesting side note that we can see how in an ironic way, this rebirth of the Renaissance period represented kind of a sort of slow death, as it were, away from God and away from the spiritual life altogether. And this brings us to one of the most popular motifs that we see emerging in the early Renaissance, and that is the motif of the skull, Mm. right? Representing Mm -hmm. memento mori. So it really came under full sway during this time. And it was after the bubonic plague subsided. Uh, It was a way to remind people who were immersing themselves in a much better quality of life now uh, to not forget the fragility of their lives. Uh, These were people who were no longer living through that strife that perhaps their grandparents faced with the Black Death. I actually find find this really poignant to think about because, you know, what we're living through right now certainly can't compare to the bubonic plague um, (laughs) by no means. But after we come out of this pandemic, I have noticed it's been slyly suggested that we may find ourselves in another roaring 20s scenario. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. Where we'll just, you know, we'll be so happy to be out of lockdown and things will be open again that we'll really be quite indulgent as a society. And it made me wonder, you know, will we have learned anything from our confrontation with death during this pandemic? Um, Will we retain any of it going forward? It is true that history kind of harkens back onto itself and, um, you know, the emergence of this skull of memento mori during a time when people were emerging from the Black Plague was really an interesting thought for me. I like that. And I think that it's so interesting to you because like you were saying, during that period of great growth in terms of like mathematics and science and astronomy and all of these things, right? And navigation mm-hmm. and new worlds, all these things were happening. But the 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 truth, the simpleness of the skull, still no matter how many great yes. things humans yes. were doing during that period, this explosion of knowledge and reason and science and bye-bye faith, um, the skull was the great equalizer still. You're still that, mm-hmm. right? Under all everything else, under your fancy clothes and under all your, you know, everything, you are just that skull. And it is, it's the, it's to this day, the most fitting symbol. And the one thing we most associate with the words memento mori. Right. And it's true because during that Renaissance period, that was a time when people really were identifiable based on their externals, mm-hmm. right? Either their appearance or their heraldry or their office in life, their job or their state. And yeah, what you're saying, just that anonymity of a skull mm-hmm. um, would have been a really powerful visual reminder, especially during that Renaissance period, that all of this on earth will be stripped away and the material won't matter, but the immaterial will. So before we get into the, I think the era that is arguably most associated with Memento Mori, which is the Victorians, um, Mm -hmm. we just want to, again, really touch on the seriousness of death throughout history. And 
I know this isn't the most pleasant topic, like we're saying. We haven't done that already. Right. A a multiple. Yeah. It's here comes more serious information about death. But what we, I think like what you're saying that you really wonder if we're going to forget what we're going through right now, right? As we go into another roaring twenties. Um, yeah. When you look mm. at history, that's exactly what happens every time, right? Mm. Massive okay. tragedy and trauma and death. And then, oh, the pendulum goes really far the other way. And then they forget it all again and then back and forth and back and forth. And so really up until I'd say immediately following World War II, we lived in a world with an incredibly, incredibly high infant and child mortality rate. Um, and so the truth is these people that you and I are talking about right now, as we move through each era, the truth is up to almost 50% of children died before the age of 15. I I Mm. can't wrap my head around that, nor can you, right? That would be two of my Mm -hmm. children, two of your children. And that was every single family. Um, It was just such a part of their lives. And this really took on, gosh, a new depth, I guess, almost a new sentimentality. And dare I say a bit of romanticism during the Victorian period. And it was really spurred on by Queen Victoria herself when she tragically lost Prince Albert. I think he was 42 when he died. And Mm. as we all know, she was, you know, the grieving widow for the rest of her life, which was many, many years, the whole second half of her life, essentially. And everybody throughout history likes to copy the monarch. It, it really does set mm. the trend. And so while the people who um, were living before this, they were still keenly into some of the themes of Memento Mori, it really took off as like a brand almost in that mm. time. Um, I'm thinking particularly like morning clothing. There were whole warehouses that were like Papa Joe's clo- um, house of <laughs> warehouse of morning clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Oh. And yeah. And they were like, it, it was very, very strict rules about what you could wear, what you could do when you're in morning. It was actually called the cult of the dead. It was such a big thing mm-hmm. in Victorian culture. Um, one of the things I really liked about, now this is getting into mourning, so it's not quite what we were talking about with uh, Memento Mori, but I, I think this is so interesting. So that when you went into mourning, into full mourning, so wearing everything in black, no jewelry, um, very limited social occasions that you'd go out, that lasted one full year. And then you went into partial mm-hmm. mourning and that would last for another two years. So you were in public mourning for three years. and. In some ways, I feel like we really rush ourselves to grieve quickly now and Mm -hmm. you push, like you're back at work three days later or whatever, right? And back then they had this very visible sign that they were in mourning and you'd be out, you know, perhaps at the market and you'd be dressed on black and people might be a little more gentle or sympathetic to you when they saw that you were in mourning. Mm -hmm. And also, I wonder if that would have any impact at all on people remembering their own deaths and, Mm -hmm. you know, bringing it back into memento mori to know that you are not so easily forgotten, right? It must have. And and with the the rates of death that we know that were so high in the life expectancy, you must have seen black everywhere, right? Like you just in an average crowd, there Mm, must have been a ton of people out in mourning. And so it really did. It's that silent witness um, about this, this, this thing that we just don't see. It's so easily hidden from us right now. And like you were saying, perhaps in some periods before. So I really do think that there's something we said for proper mourning and mourning attire. Mm -hmm. 
So, Michelle, one of the things I noticed is Memento Mori really does like cross all cultures and it was Mm. throughout history as we're seeing. And I would, well, dare I say up until, you know, the time right after World War II, as we were kind of alluding to before. And I mean, can you really blame them? Right. I think people were a little Mm -hmm. done with death after these Mm -hmm. two world wars. And I think everybody wanted to just kind of throw themselves into the shiny new life that, you know, the 1950s was presenting them new science, everything was flashy and new. So I I don't fully blame them. But yeah, when we look across the cultures too, I did want to share, I found a really interesting poem. Um, It's a Chinese poem. And the message is simply, remember, we all die, which is (laughs) memento mori. (laughs) Um, But what I thought was so cool is that the poem talks about these pieces of dried bamboo that are affixed together and they write uh, generations of stories like people's lives Mm. and histories and then your story can get put onto one of these pieces of bamboo right and connected to the family story ahead of you and so the message is remember we die and essentially um, live a life that is good Mm -hmm. enough that it will be written about and added to to that collection of bamboo stories Mm -hmm. yeah and I I really love this whole idea of memento mori being so practiced and pervasive in society even under different names and different practices Mm -hmm. and customs because it it truly is you know how we were talking about in the beginning like it is informative uh, to how we live our lives then I really think that if we consider what will happen eventually when we die that's really going to shape a lot of our priorities isn't it Like it's really going to bring into sharp focus and contrast what exactly we're living for. Um, And then it's going to remind us that our time is finite. And so how do we make that happen then now and begin today? And that is a common humanity thing. It's not uh, particular to any time in history, any part of the world. It's all over and through all time. And that example of the bamboo poem, the bamboo stories, <laughs> is a really great recognition of that. Yeah. And and it's like we've been saying all along, it's not about fearing death. It's about mm-hmm. focusing on life, right? And that's what I right. just love that it's, yeah, it, it's about all of these messages across time and countries and cultures is about, yeah, making sure you're doing the best you can and to live a good life right now. Um, and so mm-hmm. I find that that's really encouraging. Um, and so now it brings us to Ash Wednesday. Um, so I guess we're going back to a specific <laughs> culture here and religion, but um, as, right. as Christians, at the Christian church and as Catholics, we are about to face Ash Wednesday. And that comes from Genesis, as you were already talking about Genesis, but in Genesis 3.19, we heard God tell us, for dust thou art, and into dust thou shalt return. And on Ash Wednesday, we recall those words. The ashes come from the burned palm leaves from the previous year's Palm Sunday celebration. Those mm. palms were waved in the air uh, in victory and praise, right? And now mm. they're reduced to ash, and life is made up of both of those elements, victory and death joy and penance Mm -hmm. yeah and that we mark our foreheads right so Mm -hmm. uh, we go throughout our day then with a visible external sign that you know not only are we contemplating our own death but it's almost like walking bulletin boards in a way yeah (laughs) we become walking bulletin boards reminding everyone else (laughs) yes in fact um as a side note i'm 
I, I really love that. I've always loved that. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not a surprise to people who have been getting <laughs> to know us on the podcast. But I'm always sad when the priest is a little conservative when he's <laughs> putting ashes on my forehead. I'm like, oh, you can barely see the thing. Um, but I do like that. I, I've always enjoyed when I'm able to get to a morning mass because that means Mm -hmm. I have an entire day then to wear the ashes to be reminded of it every time I catch my reflection in a mirror or a window and that thought truly does stay with you and it is seeing a black cross on your forehead made of ash I mean nothing can really get the point across more than that (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it's that visual witness of death. But then as Catholics, as always, we don't leave it there. It is, again, the both and. It is the witness to death, right, of death Mm. and the calling to mind um, also at the same time of our hope in the resurrection, of eternal life, of conquering death. I love that that marks the beginning of Lent and then Easter morning, right, is the end of Lent, Mm -hmm. that it goes from death to eternal life. Um, I read something really cool about our popes and about how they're reminded of their death. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, Michelle, but on fisheaters.com, one of my go-to sites for traditional Catholicism, uh, I read, and this is a quote from that page, when a new pope processes to St. Peter's Basilica to offer his first mass as pope, the procession stops three times, and at each stop, a piece of flax mounted on a reed is burned. As the flames die, the pope hears the words, Pater Sancte, sic transit gloria mundi, Holy Father, thus passes the glory of the world, to remind him not only that he is a mere man, but that as a man, a mere mortal, whose life is like the end of all other men, the things of this world are transient, and Christians must always keep one eye on the world to come. Wow. I mean, that's pretty poignant, too. That kind of goes back to the the dance macabre thing, right? That Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's a reminder that it's for everybody. (laughs) Death is for everybody. I don't know. But also that the resurrection then in, in Christ is for everybody, too, then. And it keeps him focused on what his role is then, too, right? It's a very somber reminder mm-hmm. of what his duty is and then what his end goal is. And now, even more interesting, this actually predates the popes. I found the more oh. ancient version of that. And this is actually where they believe the words memento mori come from. It was a very common practice in ancient Rome when a uh, a general would be like parading through the streets, you know, everybody would be cheering for him mm-hmm. and he'd be all proud and stuff. There would be a man crouched beside him, whispering into his ear as he paraded victoriously through the town, Respice post te, hominem te esse memento, memento mori. Look behind you. Remember that you are but a man. Remember that you will die. I think that's really interesting. And that's even before... Christianity, you said, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So those are the generals coming in in victory and they are stopping in their procession to remember and reflect. And so, yeah, like this whole dichotomy between like victory and death, um, you know, being culminated in Christ, really, right? Yeah. <laughs> that he yeah. himself died to destroy death so that we could live. You know, the common saying is there's no Easter morning without Good Friday, mm-hmm. right? But the opposite is also true. We can remember it's like you you will always go through a Good Friday, but there is an Easter Sunday waiting at the other end if you choose to accept it. 
Yeah, the quest, the quest for eternal life, the quest for living the mm -hmm. best life possible. And when, when, you know, humans didn't have all the tools for that, didn't have the full story revealed to them, they did their best. And, but it always shows that hunger. And I love that almost the advanced thought of keeping your mortal feet on the ground, um, even mm -hmm. amidst the celebrating. I, I think it's incredible. Um, you're talking about motifs. And so just, we're going to take a really brief look at some of the ways that more, uh, Memento Mori has you know, shown up in art, some ways that are expected, mm -hmm. some ways that aren't expected. So you had mentioned the skull and that's like the common symbol is the skull and it's missing its lower jawbone and it's on two large bones, usually resting on two of them mm -hmm. underneath. I then discovered, and you and I are both going to be asking for these for Mother's Day, I bet, um, they're skull <laughs> clocks. <laughs> What? It is a <laughs> yeah, it's a skull clock. Uh, oh. So it's got the clock on the forehead and uh -huh. <laughs> with the, usually the words Tempest Fugit or Time Flees written on it. <laughs> so why not <laughs> up it and be staring at the skull with the time actually ticking away on it? Wow. Wow. Yep. yep. Mother's Day. Okay. <laughs> yes, there we go. Find that on Amazon. Right. Um, <laughs> Um, and another thing you and I love are candles. Well, I just learned mm -hmm. that sometimes candles in art represent the passing of time. And so, you know, you might see an older person and a candle that's near the almost burned mm. out in the background. And I thought that that was really interesting too. Again, it's supposed to call to mind to the viewer to understand that, uh, you know, like that candle, you mm -hmm. could be snuffed out at any time. Okay. <laughs> Um, another one, and this was actually Van Gogh's um, famous painting of the sunflowers in the vase. I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. is there like a hidden skull in that? Like, how is that memento mori? Right. In the sunflower seeds. In the yeah, right, right. You look really close. <laughs> it's one of those 3D things that you magic pull back eye. in a skull. Yeah, magic eye in a skull pops out. <laughs> but no? Um, no, right. no, no. Um, the cut flowers, apparently in that image, and sometimes other cut flowers, but in a vase, um, it's mm. supposed to be the moment of beauty, the flash of beauty prior to the de decomposition, which is already starting oh. as soon as those flowers have been cut. Um, so right. it's in contrast, right? The moment of beauty contrasted against the death that is imminent now that they have been cut. Um, another thing is sometimes you'll see images and sometimes you see this actually beside the skull, um, glasses left on a book, an open book. So it's like mm -hmm. the person was there reading and boom, they're gone finished oh, okay. their glasses are just placed down at that moment which i think is really neat now the one that stood out to me the most actually is by the artist frida kahlo and um i don't know if you're familiar with her but she was afflicted mm -hmm. by a lifetime of debilitating illnesses and disease and a very painful um existence and so she faced death constantly and she did this one painting and it's of bright watermelons they're juicy they're full of life they're beautiful mm. and some of them are sliced open and etched into one of the slices it says viva la vida um live the life and this mm. is you know coming from a woman in who is always facing death but contrasting it with the beautiful colorful juicy bright ripeness of fresh fruit um so really interesting when you start poking around and seeing some of the things that are a little less obvious than what we're used to Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can see how this has been on the minds of people throughout all time in history, especially mm -hmm. through these uh, subtle and not so subtle uh, depictions in art. So in doing my research for this episode, I came across a point again on fisheaters.com where they said, we are afraid to look at death and we are poor people because of it. And you alluded to this in the opening, like, are we any better as an individual mm -hmm. or as a society because we are turning away from death? 
Um, I said earlier that I've always been interested in death and the funeral practices of different cultures. It's what led me into anthropology and university. And I really think it's very telling how we treat the deceased in our communities and in our lives. I think it's really telling about the living. And mm. I really was struck once when I heard the this practice of some of the Indigenous women in Canada. And this might be true in the States as well, but I was looking very local to our area in Ontario. And they would lay out the body of their loved ones and they would leave them for a while, a year, sometimes longer than that. And, and I'm sorry for being graphic, but this is what we're talking about, right? We're talking about facing death. So they would go in later and in order to remove the last bits of flesh from the bones, they would wash the bones with their own tears. And mm. can you imagine doing that for your child, for your husband? Mm. And they would just weep over them and then they would clean their bones and then they would bring the bones to an ossuary, a place where bones are stored. We have those in the catacombs and all throughout uh, Catholic churches throughout Europe as well. These, these ideas of the catacombs. In fact, it is the way that they stored the bones. That was one of the first links between the early Catholic missionaries and the natives. They both run, understood how they mm. both really treated bodies and death and how they yes. took great care of them. And that was something that they actually really bonded over. And I found that that was absolutely beautiful. That got me again, yeah, thinking about how the closeness, the intimacy that our ancestors, I mean, not even 100 years ago, bodies were still laid out in homes for most of our families. And mm. particularly if we lived rural, like in the 1920s, my great grandmother was laid out in her living room. And mm. um, so there would have been this immediacy, this this intimacy as well with death. And there was a period where you would actually be able to properly mourn because you'd still be with the body. You would dress it. You would bathe it. You would, it would be in your face. It was unavoidable. You would mm -hmm. smell it, right? Like all of it would be right there. And then when it was time to bury the body, you were ready. You had been with that mm -hmm. body for a couple of days. You'd say you were ready to pass it on. You know, now it's very, in some ways, impersonal. It's very sterile. It's very commercial. They're taken from us mm -hmm. and you see them again, all made up in a perfect little spot and then they're gone away. And how has that in only the last couple of generations shaped our views on death and on our own mortality? Hmm. Well, that's a really interesting thought. If that, if I were to be privy to that firsthand, I can definitely see how it would kind of bring things to a close, I guess. Yes, Once it was yes. finally time to actually say goodbye, you've really gotten it all out. And you really understand that they're gone. There's some part of the processing for some people is that they're having trouble even believing that the person is gone because if you weren't with them mm. in the hospice and then you just see them looking like they're sleeping, essentially they do such a great job. Um, it's really mm. hard to wrap your head around that. Well, there is no denying it when you're in the presence of somebody who hasn't been prepared like that. So yeah, it's this, um, you're faced to force it and that helps move along the closure, I think in a beautiful way. So um, obviously this is something that I've been given this a lot of thought actually over the last couple of years myself. And I think it's something we should think about. I mean, that's the whole purpose of this episode is to get you thinking mm -hmm. about it. Um, you know, we are facing a public health crisis right now, one that hasn't been experienced on the scale in generations. And we see so many people, so many wonderful people, our loved ones, government officials, medical professionals, but they seem to be ruled, overcome by fear. And we're not, mm -hmm. let's be really clear. Don't get us wrong. Prudence, wisdom, charity. These are all virtues that need to be in the forefront of our minds right now during this pandemic maybe now more than ever, but memento mori, it's, it's, again, it's not about coming from a place of fear. 
And it's about using our reason. And it's about to steer us towards living, but not because we're scared of dying. It's that reminder that this world is not our home and that our bodies are temporary and each day is a gift. I mean, we say these things, but have we really stopped to meditate them in a while? There is a saying among Native American cultures. Um, it, it basically translates to today is a good day to die and its actual origins are unknown. And it has been appropriated into our culture by the Klingons in Star Trek. Michelle, I never thought I would say those words <laughs> in this podcast. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that took a turn. <laughs> yeah, but I had to acknowledge it because perhaps there are some Trekkies listening going, wait a second, I've heard of this. Um, but yeah. th that is their motto. But it's today is a good day to die. It's it's the cry of Hokahei. Hokahei. And that is the battle cry that would resound. You could hear it across the, the hills, you know, of these men, these Native Americans preparing for battle. And mm. they were just ready and willing to fight until the death to defend their families and their homes. And it takes away the sting of death when you just own it. When you say today is a good day to die. But that mm -hmm. what that really means is I'm ready for whatever comes today. And this is the crux of it, isn't it? Are we ready for whatever comes? And this is how we conquer fear. This is how we live that life worth living. It's through a deep understanding that we will die. And that death for each and every one of us, as you were saying earlier, Michelle, is the great equalizer. But it's only then that we will finally understand what it means to be alive and therefore to truly live. time for our what we're loving this week segment of the show so Lindsay, what have you been loving this week we watched a movie over christmas break that uh was so good i can't believe i forgot to mention it until now and you'll remember me talking about this <laughs> but um just to fill everybody in we were scrolling through amazon prime and i decided to try a new movie that popped up but I wasn't expecting much, to be honest, but I thought I'd give it my old five-minute try, uh, as I tell everybody else to do. And little did I know we weren't going to budge off the couch until that movie was done. So I'm talking about My Man Godfrey. Have you ended up watching it yet, Michelle? I have not. Thank you for the reminder. Oh, yes. Okay. So this film was made in 1935, and it starred William Powell and Carol Lombard. And it's classified as a screwball comedy. <laughs> and mm -hmm. we laughed out loud for most of the film. Um, I don't want to give it away because there is a twist. Um, but it opens with one of the most chaotic movie scenes I have ever seen. Like, it was so chaotic, we almost turned it off. It was so loud oh. and hard to follow. Okay, I guess those couple minutes are right after the initial opening. Um, but the very beginning, you see some rich and very spoiled young people asking a homeless man if they can collect him and bring him in for a scavenger hunt. They are looking for mm -hmm. a, quote, forgotten man. And so the contrast between the behavior of these rich kids and how they've objectified this man and his response is just immediately shocking. But stay with it. This movie is brilliant. Mm -hmm. There is a great twist. And I'll just also mention that the costumes are swoon worthy and the film has been <laughs> colorized really well. And it's the design is so timeless. And I'm not usually a fan of the 1930s aesthetic, but this one is just, it's almost contemporary. It's just beautiful. So my man, Godfrey, Michelle, promise me you'll watch it this weekend. 
Okay. Yes, I will. I've been looking for a movie to watch this upcoming weekend, so I'll put that on my list. <laughs> Excellent. What have you been loving? So I also have watched a movie last weekend. <laughs> Again, mm. uh, we watched a movie called A Hidden Life. Have you heard of this one? I've almost watched it 20,000 times, but I've heard it's a big tearjerker. Oh, okay. Yes. So uh, I'll tell you why it is. Okay. <laughs> um, I loved this movie though. Like I, mm. it is in my top five for sure. And I <gasps> oh. said to Phil, yeah, that this one would be one I would visit over and over again. Um, it tells the true story of Franz Jagerstadter, who was a conscientious objector in Austria during World War II. He would not swear allegiance to Hitler after learning about the atrocities and the evil the Nazis were perpetrating throughout Germany and beyond. And actually, he holds a dear place in our hearts as Catholics because he is beatified. Mm -hmm. We refer to him with the title Blessed, and he's very close. It's one step from becoming a fully canonized saint. But one other outstanding feature for me besides Franz's main storyline was I loved seeing his wife's journey and struggle playing out by his side. Um, she really struggled with his decision and you see that played really well throughout the film. And it gave me a lot of food for thought on the that whole one flesh uh, that mm. we talk about in marriage being actualized and how you can struggle with differences while still being absolutely united with your spouse. Uh, oh, and speaking of which, the way their Catholic faith is lived in the everyday minutia, I think you'll love it, Lindsay. Like, it's mm. really inspiring. And it moved me, like, really greatly. So, I mean, I could go on forever, but I will end with this. You must see this movie. I don't often boss you around here on the podcast, <laughs> <laughs> but this film is breathtaking in every single way. It's stunning to watch and it will make you think and examine your own life, memento mori, in a profound way. And that's, it is a rarity for en the entertainment industry today to find something like that. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. If you want to get in touch and chat with us about our topic today, you can find us on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com or leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at The Modern Lady Podcast. And please stay tuned after the show today for a sneak peek at our new podcast called The Friday Finishing School. I'm Michelle Sachs, and you can find me on Instagram at mmsachs. And I'm Lindsay Murray, and you can find me on Instagram at lindsayhomemaker. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and we will see you next time. Take your seats, ladies. Class is in session. When I was 13, I fell in love with the arts. First it was classical music, and then poetry, and then visual art. I'm no expert in these areas, but I do love sharing interesting bits of information I've learned over these last 30 years or so. Michelle and I firmly believe that every woman should be able to hold her own in almost any conversation. We believe that by asking ourselves just a few questions every time we listen to, read, or view art, we will have enough of a basis to form our own opinion, and then we will feel more confident sharing that opinion with others. In the Friday Finishing School, I will present a different piece of music, poetry, or art 
and then Michelle and I will discuss the piece, sharing our thoughts while deepening our understanding and appreciation of the arts. We look forward to having our Patreon supporters join us, learning alongside us at the Friday Finishing School. Be sure to become a Patreon supporter for just $5 a month over at www.patreon.com forward slash the modern lady podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. 